welcome to the latest edition of Outside the Box, which is uh, sponsored and produced by Notre Dame's International Security Center. My name is Jim Webb. I am the Distinguished Fellow at the International Security Center, which we call NDISC. And I am the acting host on this particular show today because I have a special guest that I want to introduce in a, in a minute here. The story of Ukraine, the Ukraine war actually didn't begin when the Russians invaded a year and a half ago. It began well before that. We know as people who are really intricately involved in watching international security issues and foreign policy, that there is a large misunderstanding, I think, you know, among the American public about the whole trajectory of how this ended up happening and hopefully how it might at some point be brought to an end. My guest is my boss, <laughs> Professor Mike Desch, who is the Becky D. Professor of International Relations in the Department of Political Science at Notre Dame. He is also the director of the Notre Dame International Security Center. Professor Desch has written, I think, in many ways, a sort of a, a pioneering look. I want you might say revisionist look, given what has been commented on from the beginning when it was fairly dangerous politically to be saying that maybe there were other reasons that this was happening and how uh, we might balance that out trying to move to the future. And this piece it was printed in this month's edition of Harper's Magazine, which has done, I think, a, a pretty salutary job over the past several months of, of trying to get a, a broad uh, outlook on this very troubling issue. It's a long piece. It's a very long piece. It's probably 5,000 words. I've read it several times now. And, and it's it's filled with information that I think the public needs to be aware of. And Professor Desk, Mike, if I may, has taken a unique approach to looking at this, doing it rather than event by event purely, uh, looking at it through the biographical eyes of the now famous president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, and it's been a re it's a really unique look. And we're going to have some, I think, pretty interesting discussions on this during this podcast. And let me uh, stop right there and welcome Professor Desch and also ask him my first question, which is, what motivated you to write this piece and to write it in the way that you have done it? Well, uh, Jim, first of all, it's a pleasure to be on the other side of the microphone from you rather than in the same foxhole as we usually are. Not that I don't like being in the same foxhole with you, but I, I'm grateful to you for the opportunity to talk about the piece. Um, I think I had sort of two motivations in how I wrote it. One goes back to your opening remarks about the importance of thinking about what's going on in Ukraine today, not just beginning uh, February 22nd, 2022, um, but also thinking about it in the context of the history that led up to that um, and how far back you should go. Should it be 2014 with the uh, Russian seizure of Crimea and the beginning of the Donbass rebellion? 
should it go back to uh, 2008 and the NATO Bucharest summit where uh, membership for Georgia and Ukraine was explicitly put on the agenda by the Bush administration? Or should it go back to the 90s? I think you can make arguments for all of those as where you ought to start. But I think your basic point was spot on, that if you just start with the the Russian special military operation last year, you're not going to understand what's going on. So that's one, you know, sort of rationale. But the other, and this goes to your uh, characterization of the piece as uh, biographical, which I think, again, is uh, right on target. Um, Volodymyr Zelensky, the uh, Ukrainian president, uh, is a very interesting uh, individual. He has uh, a unique biography that, uh, you know, I think shapes both you know, the very praiseworthy uh, and admirable things he's done since his uh, landslide election uh, in 2019, but also accounts for the disappointment that uh, I certainly feel, and I think a lot of other people feel, about, uh, you know, how he has subsequently uh, uh, acted uh, as president. So, Biography and earlier history, I think, are absolutely critical to understand what's going on today. And I think not at all really a part of the uh, discussion in the West and especially the United States about what's at stake and what we ought to be doing there. I want to ask you a follow on on, uh, on Zelensky, but before I do, uh, could you explain for the listeners of the podcast, the, the Minsk Accords and the uh, the the difficulties in uh, our national uh, interest forming a position on it and how it it uh, became to be one of the crucial events that caused this war. Yeah, that's a very important you know thing that uh, I think is not well understood in the United States for sure. Uh, and again, very important, especially uh, in thinking about the road that might have been taken, but wasn't, that might have averted this whole conflict. So after the Maidan uprising, which overthrew the uh, Russian-leaning president of UK- Ukraine in early 2014, uh, two things happened. One is that the Russians invaded Crimea, the Crimean Peninsula. And the Crimea was formally part of post-Soviet, post-1991 Ukraine, but it had a very complicated history. It's not fully a part of historical Ukraine in, in as much as there's a clear historical Ukraine. It wasn't Uh, considered, for example, as part of the uh, Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic in the early days of the Soviet Union. And it was only when ethnic Ukrainian Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev decided to, uh, you know, move around the deck chairs of the Soviet Union that Crimea became 
administratively a part of Ukraine. And so once the Soviet Union fell apart, the uh, Russian Navy, you know, initially by agreement with Ukrainian leaders, had maintained a substantial military presence on the uh, Crimea, especially the uh, Russian Black Sea Fleet and a series of ports, the most uh, well-known of which is Sevastopol. And until the uh, Russian-Ukraine conflict really heated up in 2014, you know, it wasn't an issue that uh, caused a lot of trouble uh, between the two countries. Although the Ukrainian citizens of Crimea had always been predominantly Russian speakers and inclined more in the direction of close affiliation with Russia than with the uh, with the West. And so after relations between the uh, two sides start to deteriorate, the Russians just decided they're going to grab this back. They had strategic reasons for doing it, but also the overwhelming percentage of the population there uh, was happy to be annexed to Russia, and that's why it was literally a cakewalk. But the other thing that happened in 2014 is as the country of Ukraine became polarized between pro and anti-Maidan factions, and this you know, really encompassed competing visions of Ukrainian national identity, uh, the large Russian-speaking population in the east, in the oblast of uh, Luhansk and Donetsk, started increasingly uh, lobbying to uh, either change the political relationship with Kiev or to secede from the Union and become independent states. And this very quickly became a violent uprising. Now, in the West, we sort of treat this as uh, the Donbass uprising uh, as completely an artifact of Putin and, you know, the uh, Russian security services creating an opposition to these uh, oblasts staying as part of Ukraine. But actually, a lot of people who study this very carefully recognize that there was a great deal of uh, local sentiment uh, for changing the relationship between uh, these eastern oblasts and uh, the Ukrainian government. So it turns into civil war, and it's quite a bloody civil war, tough fighting on both sides. The Ukrainian army, by the way, was uh, also very small and somewhat politically divided in the post-Maidan period. And so Kiev was not able to uh, rely exclusively on the uh, you know, remnant Ukrainian army to fight the separatists. So uh, a whole series of sort of uh, independent political military formations also became uh, part of the uh, effort to suppress the Donbass uprising. And it escalated as these sorts of units started taking a, a bigger role in trying to put down the rebellion. Then the Russians, you know, started, uh, you know, sending or at least winking at, you know, Russian 
citizens and maybe even military personnel or private military contractor personnel going in and helping the Luhansk People's Republic and the Donbass People's Republic fight uh, Kiev. So this went on 2014-2015, and there were two efforts to sort of shut the uh, fighting down. The first one at the end of 2014 was uh, first uh, Minsk Agreement, and it was named after the capital of Belarus, where the uh, representatives of the two sides met to try to hash out a, uh, a, a ceasefire and a longer term agreement. That broke down, and it wasn't till 2015 when the DPR, LPR, and some Russian supporting forces inflicted a decisive defeat on the Ukrainians, and the Ukrainians agreed to uh, what's referred to as Minsk II. Now, the elements of Minsk II are not only a ceasefire, but there were a couple of other things that were central to it, one of which was a uh, an increased level of autonomy within Ukraine for the eastern oblasts, and secondly, uh, the hope that, at least from the Russian side, that by empowering the pro-Russian elements in Ukraine, you'd also stem Ukraine's drift towards the West, towards initially membership in the EU uh, and then subsequently membership in NATO. Now, I think, and I suggest this in the piece, that Minsk was the off-ramp for what we've got today, a major ground war literally on the uh, edge of Europe. Minsk or Minsk II was not fully popular uh, with a lot of Ukrainians because it would have compromised Ukrainian sovereignty to some extent. And especially for those Ukrainians who identified Ukrainian nationalism with the West and with being part of Europe and eventually joining NATO, they understood that Minsk would have prevented that. Where were the Russians on Minsk and where was Zelensky on Minsk at the time that Zelensky was elected? Zelensky ran in 2019 on two major platforms. One was doing something to end the deep and endemic corruption in Ukraine, and that was widely popular. And secondly, he ran on ending the Donbass conflict, which had been a festering sore for five years. And by all appearances, initially after his election, uh, Zelensky was supportive of moving forward in the Minsk framework, at least until December of 2019. That leads to uh, uh, an observation that I made in looking all the way through your piece, because it is uh, it's, it's sort of a, a, a strong arc in your piece uh, about about Zelensky. Um, you know, I'm a novelist, partially. And if you look at human nature and write about human nature, you get a lot of truths that you don't get specifically in the facts. I was very taken by a couple of biographical comments that you made here. One is that 
obviously he's a an actor, career actor. He had no no political experience, and he became famous in Ukraine on this uh, successful TV series called Servant of the People, in which he played a simple school teacher who becomes a reformist president of Ukraine. And what you have when you look at the different positions that Zelensky has taken over the, the time that he has been president is sort of life imitating art. You wrote that uh, a lot of people kind of saw him through the lens of the TV show. Here's the guy who was going to do exactly what the TV show was about. And that's it raises two, two points of observations from what I read in your piece. That The first is that I think there was a, a general agreement on two different fronts that uh, when when Zelensky campaigned, he campaigned in, in a very bland, neutral way. He didn't take positions. He actually let people, I'm going to write what you said here, his voters imagine themselves electing the protagonist of the servant of the people, the TV series. And he became another comment that you made, a canvas under which people can paint whatever they want. Actually, it sounds a lot like Obama, uh, the Obama campaign. That's what people kept saying over and over again. I was involved in it, that he was very careful not to pin himself down. So he kind of, when he's when he was elected, he was whatever you wanted him to be or imagined that he might be, let's put it that way. And the, uh, the, the second point is when he started, and you just recently uh, mentioned this, he uh, was committed in his uh, presentations and speeches to solving part of the civil war and also to doing something about corruption. And he, for reasons in both of those, it seems like he got shut down. Now, if he's an actor, how do we know what he really believes? And what were the considerations that shut him down? Because I think they are very material. Yeah. And those are really uh, two big questions, Jim, but I'll do my best to answer them and uh, as briefly uh, as I can. Take your time on this one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, you know, in recounting his history as an actor, I don't mean to be dismissive of him. Uh, you know, because uh, it'd be easy to think ah, he's just an actor. You know, he hasn't got any real gravitas. But, you know, on the other hand, we've had in our own country, Ronald Reagan, who also uh, spent a lot of his life as an actor. But, it, you know, just because he was an actor didn't mean that he didn't have strongly held views. Parenthetically, Mike, you know, Ronald Reagan served two full terms as governor of California before he was elected president. Yeah, no, that's that's true. But, I, you know, I think that one could say that you could tell a story about how somebody with that background, what was Reagan's uh, one of his many nicknames, the great communicator. And communication is really important in politics, as you know better than than I do. It did also mean that he was careful uh, about, uh, you know, sort of how he portrayed what he was trying to do in a way that maybe allowed him a lot of tactical freedom, you know, once he got into uh, office. 
But the second question you asked is, so he campaigns on ending corruption and on ending the Civil War. Uh, what happened to those things? In the West, we don't talk about ending corruption in Ukraine because we just stopped talking about it once the uh, Russian special oper military operation began, even though it's painfully apparent from the consistent scandals involving high-level Ukrainian government officials that corruption is alive and well in Ukraine despite the war effort. And so I think on the corruption issue, he, he ran into a problem in Ukraine that was uh, very, very difficult to take on and, and difficult from a government perspective, but also difficult for him personally, because one of his key financial backers when he was in show business was also a uh, very important figure in the oligarchical class within Ukraine. So he found it you know, hard to actually uh, take that on. The political side, I think, is in a way related to the failure of the war against corruption because a political alliance formed between the sort of oligarchs that didn't want to see a real serious anti-corruption program succeed and the uh, hardline nationalist right that regarded the Minsk agreement as a sellout of the uh, principles of the, uh, you know, the Maidan revolution, as they call it. So there was plenty of domestic operation in Ukraine, but there was also quite a bit of international opposition to Minsk as well. And I think the most important opposition came from the United States and particularly the Biden administration, which, you know, the Trump administration sort of treated Ukraine with benign neglect and, you know, only really saw it in the context of Trump's political fortunes. But the Biden administration was really committed to the principle of an independent and pro-Western uh, Ukraine. And given, again, that Minsk would have diluted that, they were having none of it. And that's right. been sort of a consistent uh, pattern since uh, Biden came to office. Right. Yeah, I want to I want to follow up on that. Be, be, before I do, though, with respect to your comments uh, about Zelensky and those two major issues that he brought in to office, uh, I think that may well he may well have seen how difficult it is to govern. He was a, a political novice when he walked in. You can can't go. You can go out and campaign and pro promise people everything, and then when you come into office and decide that you are going to literally solve the two most difficult issues in the country at that time. Uh, I think it, it was a big wake up for him. On the corruption side, it's still very live. I, mean, I, I recall a few uh, months ago at the EU meetings when uh, uh, Zelensky had come in and the EU committee, whatever they call it, had basically said, like off, off the record, but clearly that Ukraine would not be admitted unless they could get their arms around uh, corruption. It's uh, apparently a 
you know, still a monstrous issue, maybe cultural, maybe maybe otherwise, but it seems that from reading your article, he may have actually been threatened and personally threatened on that issue. And then the other, uh, as as you wrote, was that on the on the other issue of resolving the Civil War, there was a very uh, strong push against it from the ultranationalists who were promising uh, riots and, and these sorts of things. And so he started sort of changing his positions as, as he went along. And that goes to actually what you were talking about with the United States uh, opposition to uh, the uh, Minsk Accords and this sort of thing. Because when, when you read and when I was actually seeing this occur, there were statements that were coming from Zelensky and certainly from uh, the Russians that this was going to be solved, that this was this was not perhaps this was not the great invasion that people were looking at it. It was a show of force because of the other issues. And then President Biden, I think, made a huge mistake when he mentioned Putin. Putin was a war criminal. A head of state doesn't say that about another head of state. Uh, and, and particularly a powerful head of state in that situation. The United States, it, it seems to me, had a very great impact on the Ukrainians digging in as deeply as they did. And, you know, and from the from the heart from so many Ukrainians standing up to the, you know, the historical opponent of Russia, et cetera. But where where were we in that formula? Well. As I say in the piece, America's involvement in Ukraine, at least, you know, since 2013, sort of oscillated from deep meddling. During the Obama administration, you had uh, Victoria Nuland, who was the assistant secretary of state for European affairs, you know, over there handing out tea and cookies to the uh, you know, the Maidan protesters and pushing a very hard line. Remember that as the Maidan crisis grew late in 2013 and early 2014, a deal had been struck that would have solved the crisis by calling new elections. And that deal got run over like by a semi-truck. And we were, I think, pushing the people that were driving the semi-truck to uh, take the most hardline position uh, in resolving things without a uh, an, another election. Again, I think the, the Trump administration, uh, you know, was sort of feckless in its dealings with Ukraine. But the Biden administration, you know, has come back to uh, a deeply engaged and a, a very strongly uh, pro-Ukraine and anti-Russian position. Where is the statesman-like view of what's happening in Ukraine that uh, you know you you saw in the United States earlier in its history, where we were able to you know look at conflicts like this with a sort of distance and figure out what's best over the longer term and what's best for the local people. I don't think since 2013, if not earlier, we've had that distance in Ukraine. There's a, a few sentences in your piece that if this were a, a legal case when I was in law school, I would call this the ratio decidendi. It's the, you know, the, the, the exact uh, reason for the decision, you know, the, the point that you were making. 
You, you were talking about an issue that I have very strong feelings about, as well as I know you do, and that's moral courage. We don't see enough of it, I think, in a lot of today's highest uh, military leaders. I, I say that with regret, just will stand up for things that are important, and it's hard. Um, but you, um, you mentioned the opportunities early on that he had, and then you said that he folded so swiftly contradicts his well-managed image of integrity and courage. More importantly, his failures of foresight and fortitude meant that Ukraine squandered its chance to avoid the current conflict. Indeed, if Zelensky could have stood down his domestic opponents, particularly in the honeymoon period after his 2019 victory, perhaps he would not have had to stand up to the Russians in February 22. Rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> Care to comment? <laughs> yeah. Um, Zelensky like Winston Churchill from a previous era, who everybody is comparing him to, are complex characters. When I talk about the tragedy of Volodymyr Zelensky, I mean it as a, a tragic thing. I don't think he's uh, a bad person. I don't think he's lacking in important skills. I think he demonstrated, for example, in February of 2022, great physical courage. I, I think if the Russians had been coming and I'd been in Kiev, I wouldn't have been asking for ammunition. I'd been asking for a ride to, uh, you know, my exile somewhere else. So, I mean, like Churchill in his finest hour, in the uh, summer of 19 and fall of 1940, that's a real accomplishment. On the other hand, though, the, the issue of moral courage, I think he's shown less of that. And particularly, I, you know, I wanted to go back to the, uh, you know, your very important question about why he failed on corruption and uh, on settling the war. And I think you're right, it was a wicked problem. Both of them were wicked problems and he would have paid a price. It could have been a physical price, but certainly a political price to really take those things on. But given the you know sort of image that we've created of Zelensky as this conscience of the West and this paragon uh, of moral fortitude, I don't see that consistently throughout his career. And why didn't he take the view that I'm going to go all out in 2019 on these two issues, and if it means I don't get reelected or I get for forced out of office, so be it. I think actually in 2019, with the electoral mandate that he had, which spanned Ukraine, I mean, there were a lot of people in the East who voted for Zelensky as well. So he had quite a mandate. Now, it would have been tough because, you know, the oligarchs had a lot of financial power and the nationalist right had some guns and could get people out in the streets to raise hell. But somebody of significant moral courage combined with physical courage could have stood up to it i think maybe maybe and you know right and thing. i and i think you know uh, in in terms of political reality and the situation there it it in in my my view of thinking about it 
I think it may have been a reflection early on of his lack of experience in the governmental uh, world. You know, he was stepping in to be president and, and, and he really hadn't been involved in, in the government issues through his career. There was a, a, a quote you had from, uh, I'm going to probably not do a good job on this uh, name either, Roman Besmertny, uh -huh. who Zelensky appointed and then fired from the Ukrainian delegation to the trilateral contract group, said that when he met with the president in the summer of 2019, he asked him how he viewed the situation in the Donbass. And he replied that by the new year, by 2020, we have to resolve the issue with the Donbass. And I already realized that he had no idea what it was. Because the word solve, the issue with Donbass sounded like tackle corruption, engage in economic reform, that is, to do nothing. And given that this was not within the grasp probably of all of the uh, opposition that he had throughout the you know other elements in the country when he when he took office he couldn't do it, it, it you know, he couldn't do it immediately he couldn't be like okay turn the light switch on turn it off i'm president now and then it seems to me looking at it and reading your piece that at the very beginning of of this war he was ready to deal in a, I think, pro probably a realistic way for, from our perspective sitting here. And he basically seems to have gotten been talked out of that by the West. Yes. And then here he is. And now he's grasping. He's trying to lead his country. And he is showing courage, you know, uh, uh, and he is out there. But the agenda that that is being followed with all these weapon systems, sophisticated weapon systems that have gone in there, I don't know how this ends. I don't know how he, who he would work with in order to make it in, unless it was some voices in our administration or other leaders, leaders in NATO, particularly the UK, which is very, very hard over on this. But how do we get out of this? That's, that's probably the most important question of our visit today. Yeah, it, it's the <laughs> 64 billion hopefully not the $64 trillion question. At this point, I can't say how we're going to get out of it because it depends uh, on three things that it's you know hard to predict how they'll go. First of all, how, how long will support in the United States and the West for basically a, a blank check for Ukraine in terms of military and economic support continue. There is some evidence, I think, and you see it among some House Republicans, and there, there's evidence in Europe as well. It's sort of low-key and below the surface that people are you know, starting to say maybe enough is enough. And maybe that could grow to the point where it changes the political calculus in Kiev. Second thing that might happen is what if the uh, war goes ultimately the way the Russians hoped it would go? I don't anticipate that the Russians could win and control all of Ukraine. But I could see the possibility that the Russians are able after, you know, the uh, Ukrainian summer offensive peters out 
that they could go on a tear for a while and seize even more territory and then impose a settlement on a rump Ukraine. That, it seems to me, is possible. Maybe the Ukrainians achieve the breakthrough and the Russians collapse and Putin gets hung from a light post. I think that that's a very remote possibility. So I think ultimately, at the end of the day, this is going to be negotiated. And it's going to be negotiated on the basis of concessions from both sides. There'll be territorial concessions. Crimea is never going back to Ukraine. I believe uh, Luhansk and Donetsk are gone. They're part of uh, Russia. And the question then is, what's left? And what's the relationship of what's left of Ukraine with the West? I doubt that NATO membership is going to be on the table because the Russians will never agree to it at this point. But the dirty secret is, is that the Europeans, in principle, want the door open for Ukrainian membership, but they don't want Ukraine, at least as it currently is at war with Russia and uh, still deeply rife with corruption to be a uh, strategic liability. So the question is, if that's a realistic characterization of the situation, a long-term stalemate, when is President Zelensky or maybe a successor going to realize that, as Kenny Rogers famously said, you got to know when to hold them and know when to fold. And if if you hold them for another year and another 150,000 people uh, are killed on both sides for exactly or almost exactly the same uh, final state, that is, it seems to me, a terrible outcome. Yes. And the the other danger here is this is a in terms of the use of weapon systems this isn't necessarily a stalemate we continue to increase with sophisticated weapon systems like the missile attack that went into this naval command the other day so this is very fragile and extremely volatile if countries like the united states the ukrainians increase these attacks outside ukrainian territory because you're going to get uh responses and it's you just don't know how that can can blow up. Europe is famous for small engagement creating huge lasting wars. So um, you know we, let's let's hope what you said is is something that, that could happen. And a final question on this, and this has been I think a, a very useful will talk for for me and for the people I hope who are listening. One thing that I see, I'm an Asia guy and a lot of stuff I've written about what's happened in Africa for the Wall Street Journal, et cetera, is when people ask me about the future United States strategy in the world, what should we be doing? I always say the, the very most important national security issue that we have in our relations around the world is to settle the problems here at home. China, uh, the, uh, the other, these other countries, the BRICS, they are looking at the United States and they are telling people around the world that we are a failing nation. We can't keep our borders straight. We can't control crime on the streets. And they use the Ukraine situation also as just saying the United States are they're warmongers. They don't talk. They blow things up. 
they blow things up all over the place. Look what they've done over the past 25 years or so. I think if you look at the Ukraine issue, the support for it from outside of Europe has been very thin, even with semi-allies like India and almost all of Africa. They're talking about it, and they're, they're working to form new coalitions that could really affect the United States capabilities around the world in the future. So we have to be very careful in how we try to nurse this situation into a place where it can be resolved and where we can balance out our interests in other places. I think you make two very important points, Jim. One is, <laughs> I think, getting our own uh, house in order. Thinking about the prospect maybe of a government shutdown while we're considering <laughs> another $325 million to uh, flush down the Ukrainian pipe, you know, sort of seems ludicrous. But yet we're seriously talking about doing that. So I'm uh, completely with you there. The second thing is, is I think you're also highlighting an important point that uh, most Americans don't understand. You know, we think the world is united behind us and Ukraine, that the Ukrainians are wearing the white hats and the Russians are wearing the black hats and that the entire world understands the moral calculus and, you know, who's right and who's wrong here. I think that is a caricature even increasingly in Western Europe, but certainly in the global South, it never was true that there are a lot of parts of the world that see the situation in Ukraine not in terms of black and white, but in terms of shades of gray. And they also look at the United States um, and they uh, say, geez, uh, you're talking about, you know, maintaining the norm of the non-use of military force and the inviolability of borders in Ukraine. Well, what were you doing in Iraq in 2003? Or what did you do in uh, Libya 10 yep. years later? Or what were you doing in Syria? So we're taking a big black eye in the uh, court of a big chunk of world opinion. And that may come back to bite us, you know, when we want to try to build their support for something somewhere else in the world. But we've forgotten about that, or to the extent that we thought about it, we've told ourselves this story that if Russia wins in Ukraine, the Chinese are going to automatically invade Taiwan because they just won't take us seriously. The Chinese may invade Taiwan, but it will have nothing to do with Ukraine, in my judgment. Right. But, you know, the Chinese also will form alliances with Russia, with Iran, potentially with becoming the something of the country to go to in the Middle East, trying to help resolve issues, saying they are they are a country of peace and we are a country of war and we're myself. these sorts of things. We got to get our house in order. Jim, thank you for having me on your show. Well, thank you. It's a great, it's a great article. Great article. Harper's, and I hope people will read it. It really take the time to read it. It's very thorough. Thank you. Thank you. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash. 
or follow us on Twitter at hashtag ND underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under Sample Swap.